and ask the Lord to, to bless our time in his word. Lord, we um, just so often struggle with just wanting from you what we think we need for now. You are abundant in your omnipotence and in your presence and in your knowledge. And it's, it's hard for us to keep from just coming to you for, for a little bit of, of, of what we just think we need for getting by. And, and not allowing you to just change who we are, shaping us into uh, really desiring what we really need from you. And that's a, a relationship, a closeness um, for us to be able to call you Father and, and to know it and to believe it. Lord, I just pray that uh, through our looking at Jesus' provision in John 6, you would help us to gain a better knowledge, a little bit more understanding of, of how well you can provide but also what it is you desire to provide. Uh, Lord, this is a lifetime of learning that we have in this process, and we just pray that you'd move us a little further along uh, this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so here we are in John 6, which has us in the middle of this second series of chapters that we're looking at in the book of John, which is made up of really instances of battle lines of belief being formed. And we've talked about that before. But here in John 6, since we're here in John 6 for the first time, I want you to understand that John 6 really, for us, as we're looking at it, what, what we have to gain from this is the idea that Jesus is able to meet our needs. Jesus is able to meet our needs. That's going to be overwhelmingly true throughout John 6. We're going to see Jesus do some amazing things. This morning, we're going to see him meet the disciples' needs with his power to provide. Next week, we'll see him meet the disciples' needs with his ability to always be present with them. In two weeks, the, the following these, we'll deal with the unbelief of the crowd contrasted with the conviction of the disciples that Jesus is the Christ. This morning, I want you to know that God can provide for our needs. God can provide for our needs. What makes learning that God can provide, what makes it a hard lesson to learn? Isn't it the fact that, that it usually requires for us to go without something in order for us to learn that? Doesn't it usually take us being shaken a bit in a lack of normal for us to realize that God can provide? It might be illness or loss of income. It might be a friend moving away or watching our children struggle or the passing of a friend, whatever it is, it's usually not our normal. 
here's your opportunity in John 6 to learn about God's provision by observation rather than by experience. You know, we're always interested in that. Here's our chance to say, God, I got it. I, I see you can provide no need for the tough times of want. You and I both know that we don't learn the same way through observation as we do through experience. But the truth is here. The truth of God's provision in, and, and his using need and want in order to teach us, that truth is here. The next sign that John chooses to emphasize from the life of Jesus is his feeding of the 5,000. And we'll see shortly how this really could be called the feeding of a lot more than 5,000. But what's unique about this sign is that of the signs that John writes about, it's the only one that is included in all four Gospels, aside from the resurrection. So we're going to be able to have have a fuller understanding of this event by drawing in from what the other gospel writers mention about it. If you want to reference them later, the other gospel accounts are in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 9. So we'll move through this passage slowly, and I'm going to reference additional information from the other gospels as we move through it. We read in verse 1, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, the other side of the Sea of Galilee simply means not the side that the nation of Israel was on, typically. Today, it's the side of the Golan Heights and, and basically what borders with Syria and John is calling it the Sea of Tiberias because that's what it was known as in the time that he was writing it in um, 80, sometime after 80 AD. The term after this, though, is used by John several times to introduce a new insta- incident that he's recording in the life of Jesus. There's no time definition um, with this phrase, but we're told that it's Passover season once again. So it's li- likely that six months has passed from the time of John's last incident that he records of the festival back in Jerusalem where Jesus heals the man who's born lame. But it's not like we don't have any record of what Jesus did over these six months. It's just it's all recorded. His Galilean ministry is more fully recorded in the other Gospels. There were a few reasons why Jesus chose to take his disciples across the Sea of Galilee at this time. One of these reasons can be understood from Mark 6. Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples two by two throughout the Galilean area to do ministry. They've just returned sharing with Jesus all of the stories of preaching about the kingdom. They're eager to debrief about the demons that had been cast out and the people that had been healed just as Jesus had given them the authority to do so before they went out. In Mark 6, 31, we're told that he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Speaking of going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, 
And it says, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So this is the situation of the disciples coming back, but, but at the same time, so many are coming to them um, to be taught or to be healed. And so Jesus' idea was, let's go away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. When they arrived, they found something that they weren't expecting. The people that he was so popular with across the lake had made the two to three hour trip around the north side of the Sea of Galilee and it picked up a lot more people along the way. Upon arriving, we're told in Matthew and Mark that Jesus had compassion on this crowd. Mark includes the fact that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. Luke, as well as Matthew, tells us that Jesus also healed their sick during this day. We, we know from all of the other Gospels that the evening was approaching and the disciples were starting to get concerned. Each of the other Gospels call the area a desolate place. If you've, if you've ever driven through a place like South Dakota, you can kind of picture what this is talking about. Um, they told Jesus that it was time to dismiss the crowd. The disciples thought these people need to, to get themselves some food and find some lodging. It's time to let them go. Jesus seems to, he, he moves to higher ground to survey the crowd with his disciples. And we read about that in verse 3. It says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, John includes. The mountain that John refers to would simply be the highlands or the, uh, that are to the east of Galilee, um, they're today, as I mentioned, known as the Golan Heights. I, it's not a mountain as we would think of it. It's only um, an increase in elevation uh, to the east of Galilee. I actually looked this up on Google Maps. You can see that for yourself uh, to understand it. As I said, Jesus would have been moving up the incline of these hills, possibly in order to see the crowd and be seen by the crowd. And then we're told in verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So upon Jesus and his disciples surveying the crowd, he turns specifically to Philip, who's from Bethsaida, on that side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus asks the hometown boy, so where can we get enough food for thousands of people at this time of the evening? Notice how John covers both the human problems here. These are problems that come with providing for a crowd of this side, size. Jesus' statement deals with the fact that there's not a bakery that would be able to supply this crowd with the bread. That's what he means when he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people might eat? Philip's comment speaks to the fact that they don't have the money to buy the bread if there was a place. 
He estimates that half a year's wages for a person would only buy each person would only buy enough for each person to just get a little morsel. The bottom line is that they're in a pickle, humanly speaking. But Jesus is not merely human. He's superhuman. Jesus also gives a little bit of knowledge, or John gives a little bit of knowledge here from his writing this in hindsight, where he says that Jesus asked this question to test Philip and probably the rest of the disciples. Rabbis would often put their disciples in difficult situations in order to test their resolve to learn or their resolve to grow and mature. It was a common practice for teachers of that time to give pop quizzes to their students. So you kids here, you know, you can identify with these guys. Maybe the right answer would have simply been, there is no place, Lord, and we wouldn't have the money anyways. What are you going to do? What do you have in mind? Mark's account tells us that Jesus asked the disciples to find out how many loaves of bread there were among them. Then they quickly locate a little bit of food. And we read in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew is still thinking with human limitations. He doesn't know how, how this small amount of food is going to help. But we need to give Andrew some credit, though. You know, he could have said, like, with a mouth half full, I found some food. What are you guys going to do? But these were also staples of the poor, I should point out. A barley loaf was much lower quality. These would be small loaves. It was, it was lower quality than what would have been made from wheat because barley was much more bitter and coarse. As well, the fish was in abundance for the poor around that area, while beef or lamb would have been much more costly. So they're not holding on to some, you know, Angus Deluxe burgers here. They're, they're, they're you know, thinking, how are we going to split up these McChicken sandwiches off the dollar menu? So we pick up in verse 10, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, John tells us. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. According to Mark, they sat down in numbers of 50s and 100s. Uh, they had them sit down in that way to probably be better able to be served. We're told here that the number is about 5,000, but notice it's the number of men that number 5,000. In Jesus' day, it was customary to just estimate the men in the crowd for some reason. Matthew tells us there were 5,000 men plus women and children, it says. So it's estimate that the number of hungry mouths was actually between 15 and 20,000 people present here. We're talking at least the population of Crawfordsville in one spot, all hungry. We read Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. 
The other Gospels mention that it was the disciples that passed out the bread and the fish. But once again, John is solely emphasizing the power of Jesus. And, and how much was Jesus able to provide? We see there, as much as the crowd wanted. This is a significant detail that's also included in all four gospel accounts. The crowd got stuffed on what Jesus passed out. You guys who have teenagers in your home, you think that's an impossibility. It happened here. There was an Old Testament prophet, Elisha, I should mention. He was an important person in Israel's history. And he was a successor to the prophetic ministry of Elijah. And he, was in a, he had a situation that was eerily similar to what Jesus faced here. Elisha was caring for 100 men who were prophets during a famine in the land. And he's brought a little bit of food. And you can pick up in 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44, where it says, A man came from Baalshalisha. There you go. Give me a gold star for that one uh, bringing the man of God being Elijah Elisha sorry bread of the first fruits 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack and Elisha said give to the men that they may eat but his servant said how can I set this before a hundred men so he repeated give them to the men that they may eat for thus says the Lord they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So in the same way that God multiplied small barley loaves, 20 small barley loaves to feed 100 men, Jesus showed himself to be a significant person for Israel. But he provided for more than 15 thousand people and jesus provided plenty left over we read in verse 12 when they had eaten their fill he told his disciples gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten now, j many Jewish moral teachers of that day spoke strongly against the wasting of food. The idea was anything uh, of the size of an olive or larger was supposed to be saved from a meal for later or for giving to the poor. So all of you can feel guilty for what you scrape into the garbage. Um, but imagine what it was like for the disciples to be carrying each of them a full basket of bread. They started without enough for each of them to eat their fill. They end up, after over 15,000 people eat, with enough for each of them to carry a full laundry basket full of bread. And we read, when the people saw the sign that they, he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. With what we know about the peop these people's forefathers being provided manna in the wilderness by Moses um, as a ministry of the Lord, and, and they're going to go there. I mean, 
in two weeks, you'll see how significant Moses and the manna in the wilderness played out in this moment. Knowing that God made bread to be multiplied under the ministry of Elisha, knowing that it was Passover season when this over-the-top miracle was performed, and all of Israel would have been rehearsing again the Lord's deliverance of his people from Egypt. I hope you can appreciate why these people got so excited. They thought that they had found the prophet that had been promised to Moses in Deuteronomy 18:15 we can read the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me Moses says from among you and from your brothers it is him you shall li- to whom you shall listen the people we can find out in verse 15 here were eager for a leader verse 15 tells us perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people, as I said, they're eager for a leader that would come, that they believed would overthrow the tyrannical Romans. A crowd of this size starting a revolt with their own king instead of Herod, who had been placed in who had been put in place by Rome, (coughs) this would have been very noticeable and not appreciated by Rome. Also, it certainly would have derailed the timing of the plan of God for Christ's crucifixion. I appreciate how one commentary puts it, and I have the quote up here. It says, This marks the high point of Jesus' popularity and a great temptation for him. Could he have the kingdom without the cross? No, Jesus' kingdom would be given to him by the Father. The part of the Father's will, the path of the Father's will lies in another direction. Before he can be the reigning lion of Judah, he must be who the, the lamb who bears the sin of the world. Jesus is certainly the true king of Israel, as he would later tell Pilate on the day of his crucifixion, my kingdom is not of this world. At this point, Jesus sends his disciples off in their boat while he dismisses the crowd. But he'll catch up to the twelve by his own means of transportation. We'll see next week as he walks on the water. You know, I was thinking recently about the term providence. Providence is often associated with God's guidance or his care over earthly affairs, like the big things, right? But it's related to the word provident, which means to save or to provide for our future. A person is provident or prudent as they save for the future. I was reminded how much God's providence has to do with his providing for us, especially for the future. This is why we're reminded time and again in the scriptures that his mercies are new every morning. Reminded that he will provide every morning. And the, the tougher the times, the more we feel the need for God to provide for us, not morning by morning, but moment by moment, don't we? 
The fact is, we don't like these situations. The ones where we're reminded of God, our need for God's provision. We especially don't like the times where it feels like we need him to give us strength for each moment. Still, the fact is, God provides us. He provides for us, whether we know it or not. And it's good to be reminded of his provision. Whether it be by experience or by passages of scripture like this. But as we mentioned, we're usually best reminded by experience. Jesus' feeding of thousands of people helps us to better understand God's provision. We're, we're able to learn a lot about God's provision by observing what Jesus does and says in these verses. There's a lot of significant threads in this passage from which we can draw principles. I've chosen for us to focus on God's provision through three areas. One is God's ability to pr- abundantly provide. Secondly is the importance of being aligned with the Father's will. And third is Jesus' method of discipleship. So the first of these, I want us to understand, we better understand God's provision through seeing here Jesus' ability to abundantly provide. Emphasis on that term, abundantly. All across this passage this morning, we hear how large the crowd was. In verses 2 and 5, we're told that it's a large crowd following him. All four Gospels mention that it's 5,000 people, just counting the men. The size of the crowd was definitely intimidating for the disciples. You have to wonder if the disciples somehow thought that Jesus was limited in his ability to heal or to provide. They were thinking, Jesus, we've seen you do some amazing things. But what if you, if you only provide food for a small portion of this crowd? The rest of them might really be disappointed with us. We heard Philip mention that even if, if they had a half year's wages to spend on food for the crowd, it would only be enough for each to get a little. Clearly in their culture, it was better to try not to feed someone than to only be able to provide a ration of food. The disciples didn't see how they were going to be able to meet the needs of the moment. Their their response was simply this. We need a change of circumstances. Send them away. Philip looked at money as the only answer. There's not enough. Send them away. Andrew looked at their food supplies as the answer. There's not enough. Send them away. None of them were looking to Jesus as the answer. And Jesus was looking to the Father for direction. And the Father had given him the green light to do something amazing. And of course we see God provide through Jesus so that everyone was full. We read in verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also the fish, as much as they wanted. And, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples to gather up the leftover fragments 
that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. We're told about Jesus' provision in several ways, that they had as much as they wanted. We're told that the crowd, went, it was only after the crowd had eaten their fill that Jesus told the disciples to gather up what was left. Like the crowd's like, I'm going to eat another bite and just dropping it on the ground, I guess. Lastly, we're told that there's enough, as we mentioned, for the disciples to each get a basket full of bread. Now, usually we give a good review of a restaurant or maybe eating at someone's house by saying, oh, you won't go away hungry. This is the quality of Jesus' miracle that God wants us to pick up on. The fact is the same for us. If we are willing to take what God is providing and receive it from his hand, you won't go away hungry. When it comes to rough seasons of life, we have a saying that God only allows you to go through what you can handle. This is partway true. I think it's truer to say God provides for you to handle whatever he allows you to go through. In other words, it's his provisions that allows us to get through what he allows us to go through. It's the things that, that grow us in our relationship with him that makes the tough times worth it. God is able to provide what you need. Believe that today. And it seems strange to, to say this, but Jesus had different plans for this trip across the lake than the Father did. We read that. And I want us to see in here that we better understand God's provision through Jesus' alignment with the Father's will. And this kind of has to do with the fact that we better understand God's provision when we are better aligned with what it is that He is providing for us. And it's always the best. This principle has more to do with our wanting what it is that God is providing for us. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus intended to get away by himself with his disciples with other purposes in mind. He thought it best to help his disciples rest and debrief from their ministry tour around Galilee. Remember that Jesus had submitted himself. This is what Philippians 2 describes. He had submitted himself under the will and, and the work of God the Father. And so he, his knowledge, he had submitted his omniscience to that knowledge with the Father decided for him to have. So we're observing that relationship here where his intention was to get the disciples away so that they could debrief and share. But you know, there's something else that Jesus had that I think hits a little closer to home with several of us. He had a personal reason to go across the lake. For me, this is the most significant reason that Jesus wanted to go to the other side. And it was this. His friend, John the Baptist, 
had just been killed. It was the death of his friend. In Matthew 14, you can read where it talks about the death of John the Baptist. But then it, it says, in directly after describing the death and of John the Baptist and the care of his disciples for his body, it says this, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus thought it best to grieve the loss of his friend and cousin. And he takes the disciples with him. But he arrives to find the Father has ministry for him to do. Where it says in 14, when he, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Because he was so in tune with the heart of his father, his compassion led him to do what the father wanted in that moment, even though he thought his trip was for another reason originally. You might recall that he told his disciples in chapter 4, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he meant that. He meant he was, he was, perfectly satisfied what perfectly satisfied his hunger in life was to do the father's will and there was ministry to be done that god the father made clear to jesus in this moment and jesus was happy to do it in concert with the father you know during challenging times our prayers so often sound like lord please get me out of this or like the disciples, our first and sometimes only ideas have to do with earthly supply. It's hard when we're not getting what we want in the area of relationships or finances or when we're bored. And it's in those times that we feel justified or th and that we're tempted to reach out to ungodly sources for intimacy or adventure or for security. It's in those times that we feel like it's okay for me to be angry or to shrink back inside myself or to pour myself into what I think gives me significance. But it's in the times of want that God's allow for us to draw, he allows for us to draw close to him and focus on who he is. And he wants us to see him provide in ways that will amaze us. What usually happens in that process is that it changes what it is that we thought we needed or that we wanted in the first place in order to make it through. And if we are blessed with really receiving what God has for us in those times, we'll realize this closeness with him that I have received through this, this has made it all worth it. One of our greatest challenges to being aligned with what God wants to do in our lives is our love of comfort. If we're honest, the hardest part, the challenges that we face is the discomfort that they bring. We spend a lot of time trying to get over the idea that God would willingly make us uncomfortable. What kind of God is this? 
Another of the greatest challenges to us being aligned with God's purposes is our pride. The majority of our relationship with Christ is not about being anything or doing anything. The majority of our relationship with God is about us letting God be who he is in our lives and watching him do what he does if we're available to be a part of it. Lastly here, we better understand God's provision through Jesus' approach to discipleship. And this kind of has, it's kind of an example, if you will, of, of the situation of, of God's plan not being our plan as his followers. Jesus intentionally allowed his disciples to be in a pickle. Jesus asked Philip where they could buy bread, knowing the answer was nowhere. Nowhere's got enough bread for all these people. The other Gospels record the same point at some point here where Jesus tells his disciples, you give them something to eat. Where they have to be like, Lord, we're, we're empty. We're, we can't do this. We cannot meet the need here. The plan was that the disciples themselves would learn that Jesus is able to do and to provide for what he intends to accomplish. We can read in Matthew about how Jesus later refers back to the experience. And it came when they were traveling together once again, and the disciples are looking around, and they're like, did you bring bread? No. Did you bring bread? No. They're like, ooh, we didn't bring any bread. And Jesus starts teaching about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they can't, they, they don't hear it. They're like, is he saying this because we forgot to bring bread? Are we being chastised here? I love what Jesus says here in Matthew 16, 8 through 9. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that we have no bread? Do you not perceive? Don't you remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? We see here evidence that Jesus is teaching the disciples through this feeding of the 5,000 and the baskets that they picked up afterwards. And he's referencing back to it. He's like, didn't you learn that I'm enough? That I will provide what I want to see happen? And that I'll care for you? The intention was for Jesus' disciples to grow from their experience of his provision. They were intended to learn to rely on the presence of Jesus to provide for what they needed. They should have known by now, if we have Jesus, we have everything that we need, bread included. One of the questions that we should ask ourselves is whether or not we allow ourselves to be in places in which God must provide. When we do step out in accordance with his will and he confirms it by providing, we don't quickly forget it. I was thinking through mine and Kelly's experiences looking over these types of seasons of God's provision. 
And I was brought back to our adoption experiences. When we began the adoption process, we didn't have the money for it. Uh, we figured we could eventually pay it off through Kelly working as a nurse. It was going to be a stretch. We figured if people borrow money to buy cars, we can borrow money to be used by God to save a child. With every fee, we had the money that was required. Something that people are usually surprised to know, and I describe this as, we actually adopted Zachary, our youngest, first. So we brought Zachary from Liberia when he was eight months old. And within a year, just within a year of him coming into our house and us making that adjustment, we received a phone call that Zachary's three-year-old brother, Emmett, had been brought into the same orphanage. And we had the opportunity to adopt Emmett as well. It didn't take a lot of prayer for us to know, yes, we're, we're going to bring Emmett back in, Emmett into our family and we're going to bring these two guys back together. And we praise the Lord for that. We were in the process of moving to South Dakota, which meant we would start the state pro side process all over again with additional expenses and things like that. You know, God had moved us out onto a limb to adopt in the first place. And suddenly we were going to be doubly blessed and double the expenses. But you know, God provided in amazing ways without us even having to bring the need to anyone's attention. We had two different couples, one in Wisconsin and one in South Dakota, independent of each other, years apart from each other, who came to us and said, the Lord wants us to share some of these expenses with you. Each of these couples' gifts paid for a third of the cost of each of these boys' adoptions. Just blown away. A and there was much, that much more from other sources that we weren't even aware of before we started this process. The fact is this, whether you're considering adoption or, or following God's leading in another way, you rarely see beforehand how he will provide for the challenges that he brings. Now, get wise counsel. This is not, don't take this as solely God's message to you to whatever it is you're thinking about do it don't take it that way but but know that god is always throwing his children into stuff just is stuff we can't handle on our own he is able and will provide for what he desires to do in and through us plain and simple Father, you are such a great provider. Thank you so much for allowing us to see your son's experience, allowing us to see the disciples' experience. Thank you so much, Lord, for us to be able to see even your son's need to grieve. But yet at the same time, that when your will is to do the will of God the Father, it's enough. 
It's more than enough. Lord, I'm sure every single person here has a different issue in their mind of maybe how you've provided in the past or, or how they are just up against the wall with something and they need to see you provide. I pray, Lord God, that you would provide, but I pray, Lord, that you would do it in a way that changes who we are. Don't let us stay the same, Father, we pray. Allow us to rely on you a little more. Allow you to become a little bit bigger compared to how awesome you are. Lord, I just pray that we would be people that are ready to go out on whatever limb you send us on, knowing that you'll meet us there. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.